Welcome to the week eight, if you're on the NFL calendar, episode of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic and Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Amalgamated. And uh, a full week of sports, even though it feels kind of hollow, we're, we're down to only football. Uh, after the World Series ended and the NBA is over and the NHL isn't going to be back for another couple of months. And well, I mean, it's, it's all right to be stuck with football. Uh, it's a, it's a fun game to be stuck with, but. Um, so we have the biggest, strange. the biggest sport of them all going for another four or five days. What's that? Political football. Oh, the political football. Yeah, that's true. Um, in fact, uh, I received some, uh, some email correspondence about some lines, uh, some, uh, some betting that you can do on the election. Um, although I don't know if I want to wager on something that uh, is so, uh, uh, so heavy, you know? Yeah, it's uh, a little morbid to be, uh, I don't know. It's too much for me. I don't know if I could, uh, I, I'm emotionally invested enough as it is. Well, maybe you can hedge your bet. So whatever you want to happen, you bet against, and then you win either way. Yeah. yeah. If one guy wins, my 401k will go in the tank. But if the other guy wins, I'll win a big bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> or, at least, or at least that's the line of thinking, right? I think the 401k is going I in the tank no matter what. That's the advice from CCBK <laughs> CPAs, right? That's right. You know what? Maybe we, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> maybe we should get uh, – Gene Kirshner on to talk us through that, uh, or Matt, your brother should come on an actuary and tell us what we need to do uh, to maybe offset. How big of a wager do we need to place to offset 401k projections? And speaking of actuaries, also, are actuaries going to be baseball managers? Uh, moving forward, because that seemed to be Tampa Bay's approach to game six of the World Series, not just game six, but all their postseason. Now, the Chicago White Sox have a different uh, philosophy. Uh, remember when Tony La Russa was considered the big egghead in uh, baseball uh, with all his different things that he used to do that was considered avant garde or by the numbers and, you know, all these weird things like batting. Um, pitchers eighth and Mark McGuire moving him up in the order and doing all kinds of weird things. Uh, anyways, uh, everything's being done by the numbers now. And uh, interesting with, with what happened in, uh, I was going to say in Los Angeles, but with what happened in Texas for the world series between Tampa and the Dodgers uh, with Blake Snell being removed, Matt, I know you got some thoughts on it. Well, it was pretty timely after we had talked to Sal Mayorana um, on Monday that everything we talked about kind of just was on, you know, full display in that World Series game. It was everything that is frustrating people about baseball. Um, if only my brother would have known that the math nerds would be running sports, uh, you know, he could have taken a different career path. But yeah, I, I was dumbfounded that that they took that guy out. I, you just... I feel like you, at some point you have to just use use some common sense and and you know not be a slave to the numbers. But 
it shouldn't have been a surprise that day. He said, we're going to let this guy go through the lineup twice. And at the first sign of trouble and the third time through, we're going to pull him out of the game. And they did exactly that. It's what got them to the world series. It's just, it's what Sal was ranting and raving about on, on Monday. It's the, it's where baseball is right now. It's how the game is played. It's how managers manage the game. You almost don't need a manager. You could just have somebody designated in the dugout to relay whatever the message is from the stats people, because it seems like they're, they're really just following the numbers on all this. Hey, Matt, do you know, because I think you followed a little bit more closely than I do, the stats about pitchers, third time through the order, how do they do against batters that have tested positive for coronavirus that morning? <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, evidently not great <laughs> because how large that a was, sample I, do we have of? I actually went to bed after the Dodgers won because I was like, ah, oh, great. You know, I was waiting up to, you know, see who would win, see a, a couple seconds of the celebration and, you know, feel a little normalcy. And then I shut it off. I was like, ah, oh, you know, not a, not, not a bad world series. People are going to be losing their minds about that pitching decision. I woke up the next day. Nobody's even talking about the pitching decision because everybody's freaking out about the, uh, about Justin Turner testing positive and being out there and what a bad look, uh, all around, not baseball had the, the sporting world to itself and they have this analytics nightmare, right. Uh, PR wise, right. Of people saying this game is too much run by numbers. And then there you have a potentially historic starting pitcher performance ruined by a guy just, yanking him because he let up a single in the sixth inning. And then you have, you know, a, a sport that already handled the virus very poorly. They have a guy test positive for the virus and then go out there and celebrate with his teammates. And apparently he was just defiant when people were like, man, you shouldn't go out there. And he was like, screw that. And he was out yeah, there anyway, like licking the trophy and people like, it didn't even seem like his teammates cared. They're like, get in here, kid, like get in this picture. Like, it's like, what is going on? It's uh, the yin and the yang of, I don't want to say America, I think of human existence. So you had everything by the numbers. You <laughs> know exactly what we're going to do, uh, whether regardless of how it looks, no gut, no nothing. And then here's a guy who should be listening to the numbers and the science and the data, and he goes against it. And it's all gut. It's F you security. I'm going out there, get out of my way. And his buddies hugging him because they don't care. They're in the moment. It's all about being in the moment. If uh, the Rays are in known. the moment a little bit more, you know, Blake Snow might, you know, have pitched a complete game. Do you think those Dodgers players, how many of them do you think realized that he had tested positive? You're in the middle yeah, of a game. I, yeah. Who, how, he gets how many? pulled out. You know, maybe well, it was like. I'm guessing in the dugout. I mean, word has to spread. Where, why isn't Turner in the game? You know, you'd have a revolt of one of your best players being taken out of the lineup in a very important game. The I don't game know how often. Close. I don't know how often he gets pulled, though. Like, they they make so many lineup changes. It was early. It wasn't it like the seventh inning that he got yeah, pulled? Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, that's kind of early, especially. That could be. Up a pinch runner or a fielder or whatever. Um, I, I don't know. They do so much moving and shaking in those baseball lineups over the course of a game that, you know, like Austin Meadows got pulled out of that game, you know, for a, who I thought was one of the Rays better hitters. And, you know, he gets pulled out because it was a better matchup. So it's possible that some of those guys in the dugout were just like, ah, oh, we just got a, a better fielder in there and then they're out there or they forgot or I don't know, but, some guys didn't seem too bothered by the fact that 
this guy was out there occasionally without his mask. He had it on sometimes, but not other times. I like, think you're in the moment. I, I, you don't care. So what if I get coronavirus now? The season's over. We just did it. This is my brother. Uh, he is an important part of our team. He's got to be in this team photo. Um, you know, all those things are into it. That's the meathead male, you know, aspect of it. I mean, it's, I'm, and I'm not saying, I'm not looking down on it. Well, I am looking down on it, but I'm not saying I wouldn't, maybe I'd do the same thing. Maybe I'd be like, you know, I'd be so into it. You know, think of all the guys that can, are probably thinking, I don't care if I die tomorrow of natural, I won the world series. Uh, my dad uh, got to watch me win the world series or, you know, I'm set for life. I can sign WS champs 2020 on every autograph from now on, I'm not going to have to buy a beer in Los Angeles, you know, and there's the whole LA Dodgers aspect of it too, not having won a world series since 89 or 88 or what, 88. Right. Um, so there's the, how big baseball is in, in Los Angeles and just this larger than life. I think there's a lot of them didn't care because, and I think we see a lot. It's, just, it's what you see with CTE and all these other things, um, especially in the moment, people would say, all right, I'll give, you have to have coronavirus as soon as the season's over, but you get the world, win the world series. I think we would be stunned at the number, at the percentage of Dodgers or any baseball team that would say, yes, yeah, I'm fine with that. You're probably right. You probably are. And I, yeah, I, I just wonder how many of those guys realized what they were doing in the moment. And hey, maybe, maybe it is exactly what you're talking about. And they just said, yeah, screw it. You know, this is, I, I think there's probably a big part of it that, hey, the season's over. If it was game, whatever. Uh, you know, there was game seven the next day. They had just forced a game seven. They would have said, hey, man, get out of here. We need everybody. We can't have another positive before tomorrow. Now they're like, yeah, who cares? Like, yeah, I better not see you back at the hotel. Right. Now they're like, whatever. Uh, they won. Um, it's a bad look. It's it, But it's it shouldn't be surprising knowing what we know about athletes. So let's merge coronavirus and baseball back in Buffalo where the Toronto Blue Jays started things off and uh well once they left buffalo or once they got into the postseason uh, things didn't go so well for them but what about buffalo being some sort of sports haven for toronto sports teams uh, that are not allowed to compete in their country because of crossing back and forth over the border what have you uh, we're seeing some chatter in Buffalo, mostly from politicians. Uh, New York State Senator Tim Kennedy uh, wrote a letter, an open letter to Adam Silver and, um, and uh, Raptors GM Masai Ujiri saying, come play in Buffalo. Uh, the Buffalo Common Council had some sort of public statement, yes, please, Toronto Raptors, come and play uh, your games here. Uh, because of the success of the Blue Jays experience uh, throughout the summer. Um, I reached out to uh, an executive with Pagula Sports and Entertainment today who tells me that the, no one has reached out to them about this and it would have to be, uh, have the Pagula's blessing for this to take place because it would need to be in their facilities. Also, they have a hockey tenant, you know, the Sabres need to take priority over and everything. Um, so anyways, I just wanted to 
put your uh, ask you guys, uh, Jonah. I'll start with you. Your your thoughts on the Raptors possibly playing uh, in Buffalo, or maybe not. Maybe it doesn't seem possible. But and by that time, maybe fans are allowed. So maybe this is a little different than the Blue Jays, where nobody got to see them. Maybe Western New Yorkers can see these games. Well, as much as I think it would be great, and I think everybody that could potentially be involved, the politicians, the people that run the arena ownership should be in favor of it and maybe explore the option. I don't expect it to happen. I'd really be surprised if it did happen. I think there's a lot of reasons you mentioned. Maybe the big one is that the Sabres are a tenant. The NHL might possibly, there's been some talk that they would be doing a hub in Buffalo. And if that were the case, and there really wouldn't be any sort of availability for another tenant at that time. And I don't think there's any certainty from what I've seen or heard that, the Raptors are looking for a new home right now. Really, the, the NBA doesn't quite know when it's going to start and whether they're going to have fans in the stands or not, whether they're going to also do some sort of hub scenario. And it hasn't been determined yet, as it was in the summer with the Blue Jays, that Canada won't allow the Raptors to play at home. And maybe they've learned things from having the NHL in Toronto over the summer. Maybe there's differences with the NBA's protocol than the MLB's protocols were that make the Canadian government more willing to let the Raptors play at home. Another issue with the potential of the Raptors playing in Buffalo is that I don't know where they practice. I don't think, especially with the Sabres using that arena, that they could practice in the arena regularly. And I don't know if they're, now you're talking about multiple locations. There's better, I wouldn't say better, but there's probably cleaner fits for the Raptors if they're looking for another city to house them, maybe Kansas City, or splitting an arena with another NBA team, which would reduce travel overall. I just don't see it happening. It would be great, and hopefully maybe there is a day when the Raptors could play a preseason game. I think it's something that should be explored in the future, but I don't expect it to happen with this coming NBA season in Buffalo. What's the deal with Kansas City? Is it because it's not a hockey city that they wouldn't have to worry about the NHL aspect of it? Kansas City has a – NBA caliber arena that's empty right now they don't have concerts they don't have hockey I mean there might be a stray thing going on but they really could give that whole arena I don't know if they have a practice facility but they probably do have a better situation of just giving the facility over to the Toronto Raptors to use while they're in town that wouldn't really be the case in Buffalo especially if there's multiple NHL teams in Buffalo at that time it feels like not as clean as the Blue Jays to Buffalo fit, because it's not, you know, that was same organization, number one, um, that's your AAA affiliate, but it was also such a tight turnaround where it was like all of a sudden the season was starting and Canada was like, yeah, you can't play here. And they had a short period of time to figure something out. So it made sense to go with something that was easy. Um, you know, they had their, their and it was out of desperation because it the- was out of desperation as well. They, wanna, they, they were stuck. They exhausted as many options as they could, but didn't have that much time to exhaust a lot of options. So the Raptors are not desperate. They have a lot of time to figure this out. And as Jonah pointed out, they have options like Kansas City or another NBA city, and they have a lot more time to negotiate those things and say, okay, Kansas City's not going to work. Let's try, you know, Boston. Let's try New City. Let's try whatever. Um, you know, different options they run through before they would get to Buffalo, which doesn't seem ideal from a basketball standpoint. 
uh, and doesn't seem like the most natural fit. It would be awesome, especially if they could have fans. Um, it's a great team, uh, you know, and a, a sport I know a lot of people in Western New York love. Um, it just seems like a little bit of a little bit of a pipe dream. I think maybe the the better thing to to cross your fingers for is uh, an NHL hub because that seems like a, the higher probability. And you know that leads me to uh, what I've been meaning to say. Uh, since we started the show and whether you're in this bind where you have to find a place right away uh, or you have more time like the Raptors have, uh, if you are a business or starting a business, don't forget to uh, reach out to Shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. Uh, it's an accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on acquisitions and mergers. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. Shampoo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner, that's CTBK. Over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. So I'm sure they're available if the Raptors need them. Yeah, yeah I think it would be a good, uh, a good way for them to merge with, you could have Maple Leaf. Sports and entertainment. That's who owns the Raptors, right? Merging with Pagula Sports and Entertainment. Sure. I think uh, CTBK should should broker it. They should be on the phone. I don't know if the NFL would like that too much. Gene Kirshner uh, played a little college basketball, so maybe if the Raptors need a 12th man off the bench to make some threes, maybe he could fill in, in that fashion as well. I, I think he was on uh, the call list for the Bills last week to play tight end, uh, <laughs> along with uh, our UB friend, Matt Weiser. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he was around town. He could have filled in a little bit. Uh, and we're going to talk some UB football later on in the show. Uh, but first, uh, Gerald Dixon is back and, um, a great discussion ahead regarding defensive back play in the NFL today, but really with the focus on lockdown corners and whether or not that's a myth. Do lockdown corners still exist in the NFL with the way the game's played today? If they do exist, then two of them are going to be on the field in Orchard Park, Tredavious White and Stephon Gilmore, both of them Bill's draft picks. Uh, so a good time to talk about cornerback play in the NFL and what Gerald Dixon, a former cornerback, four-year starter at Alabama, all SEC his senior year, by the way, uh, and he also coached the position in college. Uh, he's going to tell us what he thinks. And also later in the show, of course, Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas to give us his thoughts on this Bills point spread. It's at uh, three as I speak. The total has gone from 46 down to 41, which is interesting. Uh, a lot of that due to the weather. Going to be uh, pretty windy and looks like a lot of rain coming on Sunday. Um, and we're going to get into that crazy spread of, depending on where you get it, 19, 19 and a half points opened at 21 points for the Jets at Chiefs. Uh, so all that uh, coming up on TGAF. 
brought to you by CTBK. Thanks for joining us. Joining us again, back by popular demand, former Bills scout, Gerald Dixon. But with the topic we're going to discuss today, just calling him former Bills scout is not enough. We have to go back to this guy's playing days because we're going to talk about cornerbacks. And that's exactly the position Gerald Dixon played. And he played it well. A four-year starter at Alabama. He was all SEC his senior year in 2002. Went on and played the position a little bit in the NFL uh, with the Scottish Claymores of NFL Europe. Won a Grey Cup with the Edmonton Eskimos in 2005. And then coached cornerbacks the Citadel for three seasons, I think it was. Was it three seasons? Before joining the Bill Scouting Department in 2014. So, Gerald Dixon, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for guys having me back again, man. Feels good. Like right, hey, it's uh, it was it was very popular last time. Things went great, and uh, and we were exchanging some texts this week. And what a natural time to have you back because of some of the things we were talking about. I don't want to just give away the show uh, based on what our texts were. We want to talk it out. But you had some really interesting thoughts on lockdown corners, and here we have two Bills draft picks who are considered the best lockdown corners in the NFL, if not the number one and number two, uh, top five for sure. Um, and I know all this stuff's subjective and debatable, uh, but you had some interesting thoughts on lockdown corners. And with Stephon Gilmore and Tredavious White on the same field uh, Sunday um, when the Bills and the Patriots meet, um, I just thought it was, it, we had to have you back to talk about this. So uh, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Uh, with that, what, Sum up why, you know, you, you reached out and you made a couple of comments. Um, they were kind of like declarations and they, I made, they made me stop and think um, regarding the value of the finger quotes, lockdown cornerback. What can you take us through that again? Well, my opinion on it is, is um, in a time right now in the, in the way that rules are in the NFL, it doesn't really allow um, guys to be locked down corners per se again um, in the terms of Deion Sanders and Rod Woods and Champ Bailey because you really can't touch the guys after five yards, which is, I mean, it's unreal. But to say that you are a locked down corner, the rules don't permit that. So in my opinion, they're, they're good corners in the NFL, but the word lockdown, I would, I would steer away from that because there truly aren't guys that are, are blanketing guys throughout the field and not allowing any um, receptions for explosive plays because my opinion is if you cover a guy um, 20 yards down the field and you get a pass interference that's just as good as a catch right so even though you per se lock them down and you had a, PB, uh, a pass interference that's still a 20 yard explosive play so there I don't think the rules allow it anymore is there a, a a turning point that you can kind of point to I, I know the rules have kind of progressively every year it seems like they're getting a little bit more uh hard for cornerbacks to to have contact and do what you're talking about but was there a moment I guess where it started um where it was like we had some lockdown corners because it doesn't seem like Darrell Revis um was still a lockdown corner but it seems like things started to turn a little bit 
And it's just kind of gone downhill because of what you're talking about with the rules. Right. I think let's not go all the way back to Mel Blunt, the guy who, you know, he rewrote the record book in the seventies because right. he would just abuse receivers all over the field. Right. He was so monstrous. There were lockdown corners, obviously after Mel Blunt and the rules started to change with the five yard right. contact and all this other stuff. But yeah, it's, it's I, all right. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Yeah. I just think that Deion Sanders Rod Woodson in their heyday, Darrell Revis, Champ Bailey, are the only guys that we can say are true lockdown corners that track everyone, no matter if you were in the slide outside or wherever. They followed you and they played man to man. Um, and those guys, I, I think they had more leeway with their hand play, grabbing, clutching, um, pushing downfield because they worked their way to get that respect. And I think a lot of the guys, the referees, didn't throw the flags. Now that the rules and everybody wants to see points get thrown on the board, as soon as you touch a guy downfield, you're going to get that penalty because it's more of an offensive league. Nobody, I don't think the fans want to come out and see a game of 13 to 16. They would rather see 36 to 26, 40s and 30s, rather than the teens of the old grab them, clutch them days um, that most corners has got away with with um, playing the position. Gerald, what do you think of, oh, go ahead, Matt. What do you think of, I guess, the, this idea of, you know, if we fast forward to the modern day and the value of cornerbacks, I find these two guys that we're talking about this week pretty interesting because Stefan Gilmore does play quite a bit of man coverage. Obviously, Bills fans saw a lot of him when you were here. Um, you know, you got very familiar with him, a guy that you could trust kind of on an island in man coverage. Tredavious White can play man coverage, does it well, but he also plays a lot of zone. Um, how do you gauge the value of each individual guy in the position as a whole because of the rules that you're talking about? So my value in a corner would be when you are on the island by yourself, what's your percentage when you're thrown against, right? And what the percentage is not allowing catches. And also on top of that, when you are thrown at – how many times do you get the ball back to the offense? Because you can have a lot of corners that get PBUs, right? But after a while, PBUs run out. The whole point of playing that position and when people throw against you, it's to get the ball back. So I put a lot of value in guys with ball skills, right? Because if you don't have the ball skills to get the ball back, I, I think we're, you and I can go out there and just hang out and knock balls down left and right. But at some point, the offense is going to get a play. Um, to get into scoring position. So that's my deal. Now, when I look at um, Trey White and Steph Gilmore, I think they're not as similar as people think they are. They're, I think they're very different in the way that they play, right? Steph Gilmore is, to me, since he's been in the NFL, one of the better corners to get his hands on people at the line of scrimmage. So his value is truly impressed man-to-man. When he plays off, that's when he's at his most least effective, where Trey is better playing off than pressing. It's because he has better feet, better understanding, better balance, better instincts is playing off corner. So you can play more zone with Trey White than you can play with Steph. Now, Steph's getting better because he's left the bills and he's, he's matured more in his, his skill set. But to me, you have two totally different corners that are very respected, but they bring different values to that position. 
Now you were on uh, Doug Whaley's scouting staff and also you carried over and worked with Brandon Bean for a little bit too. So can you go back and tell us about the thought process on letting Stefan Gilmore go and um, the money that was spent? Because a lot of people, it's, it's a contradiction, really. Bills fans were upset to see him go. And yet they said he isn't worth the money that, it, that the Patriots gave him. Right. So it's, it's this weird thing. Like the Bills fans are going to be very quick to, and they have been since he left, um, you know, say, ha ha, you, you gave up, there's your lockdown corner, all pro, no way, man, guys overrated this whole thing. And yet they were still upset to see him go. Um, the Bills front office had to make a decision. So which is it? You know, for the fans need to decide which side they're on, I think whether the Bills made a wise choice not to make him uh, so highly paid or to have signed that deal and kept him around. Right. So when you looked at Steph's career when he was here um, with, the, with the Buffalo Bills, often hurt, right? Uh, production wasn't truly high, and you're on a losing team, right? So when all those things are going against you and you try to market yourself in free agency and say, you know what? I should be the highest paid corner. Well, you got to say, how good is the defense with you? And how, um, how good is the defense without you, right? And when you ran those numbers, they were pretty close to being this even, right? So you go back and say, how much do you have to pay this guy? Now, it's easier when Steph Gilmore is now in New England and he's playing with 12 and they're winning games and he gets an interception. And with that interception, 12 comes out there and scores a touchdown. Now, that plays looks great because they're winning games. That interception is coming back as points on the board. When he was in Buffalo, if he got an interception, it might go three and out. So that's not, a, that's not an impactful play leading to the scoreboard. So when you're in New England, it's going to look much better because you're on a better team, right? Your staff's been there for a long um, period of time. And you had your offense with the, one of the best quarterbacks that's ever played a game. You're giving the ball back to him. So everything that you do is going to be plus, 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 be magnified to greatness. Other than when you were at one's build drive, you make a big play. The offense doesn't execute. You don't get points out of it. You lose that game. How great does that look? So when you're in free agency, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have all of those um, situations and weigh them out and say, is he worth paying? that much. Yes, he's locked down, but how much value is he going to bring back to your team? How much and, of it too was the, what you talked about, Sean McDermott likes to play zone defense and Tredavious White is probably a better corner for zone defense. Not that you're, you know, when the Bills let Stephon Gilmore go, they didn't know that Tredavious White would necessarily be the guy that they'd replace him with. But um, you, you know what scheme that Sean McDermott's bringing in, you know, that there's probably a timetable to compete and maybe this guy's not the best fit. Maybe he's not um, at his best when you're going to be competing. So how much of, of the scheme fit came into play there? Oh, I, I think it came in um, a great deal because again, you're going to have to pay him a lot of money. Sorry about that. You're going to have to pay him a bunch of money and not, and not get the true value out of the player. And again, hold on one second. This is very unprofessional. 
This is a podcast that has two listeners, Gerald. I think we're okay. You're on here. You're on here to uh, rate, to increase the audience. You're not, uh, this is, this is fine. This actually is better, better radio that we've had in a long time. I apologize about that though. <laughs> but that's good. just going to make Tim do some editing work. No, I, that's, <laughs> why would I? All right. So let me start back over to, um, to the, to the zone um, corner um, spot form. So, now that you, you have a player such as Tredavious White that can play a lot of the cover two, um, quarter, quarter, half um, defense that Sean likes to play, um, you can get a guy in that's not so much of a man-to-man, per se, press corner that Steph Gilmore is and be perfectly fine. Where do you think that money should be spent? And I, 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 well, I guess I'm making an, a leap there, Gerald, because I didn't get your opinion specifically on this. Uh, I mean, it, but it sounds like the, the phrase of lockdown corner doesn't really exist anymore. It still gets used quite a bit. Whoever the best cornerbacks in the league are, are going to be called the lockdown corner, right? Because it's just, they're going to have you know, that, that that's little, a term uh, that's out there. A little right. lock emoji on uh, your keyboard. They'll put it next to them on Twitter and, you know, <laughs> right. Right. Whole, whole nine yards. Like number one receiver. Like everybody thinks every, uh, my team, because so-and-so is my best receiver, he's a number one receiver. No. And number one <laughs> receiver is like a position. Right. Uh, I think lockdown corner is a position, really. Uh, it's not just because he happens to be the best uh, on, a, on a given team or in a conference. Um, so anyways um, – do you think they're overpaid then? Uh, or, do you, or do you think it's out of line in terms of the importance of where the money is spent uh, on defensive positions? So I, I tie it into it like this. It's like the quarterback position and the receiver position on offense. To me, if, if you have a pass rusher up front that can really disrupt the quarterback, you don't have to spend that much on the back end because everything's going to get sped up. So you can play – more zone, right? Your man-to-man skills doesn't have to be hip pocket tight because that quarterback's going to have to throw quicker. So you have to tie both of them in. And the way that the rules are, I don't believe you need to pay quote-unquote lockdown corners low-end quarterback money to get the true value of that position. How would you coach these guys? Um, you know, if you're coaching this position with all the rules these days, what, what would you coach them to do? How would you, how would you try to bring out that lockdown mentality in a guy that, um, maybe is being, um, officiated out of it at this point? Well, a lot of it goes into like magician's eyes, right? A magician's hands. A lot of people go to these magicians that go to these magical shows and you see the magician doing a bunch of things with his hands, right? But really you don't see him at all. So when you're teaching a corner how to really use his hands, hands have to be low, right? Slap, not grab. Eyes have to be back towards the passer because if your eyes are back towards the passer, it's less likely that that referee's going to throw that flag. So a lot of what you do is you just got to teach hands, right, at the right time when to look back, and a lot of that's feel. So you have to practice that. You have to drill those um, things that you want out of the corner. Because the hardest thing to do is to teach a guy to relax when the ball's in the air. When I was coaching DBs in in college, and you know, guys would go out and recruit on the road, and they'll come back and they'll sit down and they start, you know, talking about the guy and 
explaining who the player was and basically presenting them. The first thing I would ask him is, what does he play on offense? And if they said that he never played offense, I would say, okay, please remove that person from my desk. Because if you don't feel comfortable with the ball in your hands, at some point you're going to panic when the ball's in the air. So I'd like more receivers, punt returners, if you played baseball, outfielders, just because you feel more comfortable with the ball in the air. And you see a lot of these cornerbacks get penalties because they aren't comfortable with the ball in the air and they panic. So you have to debug that and coach that out of a lot of guys to relax when the ball's in the air because truly it's between you and the receiver. But you see a lot of guys start grabbing and clutching just because they panic and they don't feel comfortable with the ball in the air. Let me ask you an old guy technique question, Gerald, because back when I was learning how to play defensive back in the 80s, um, even if you were in man-to-man coverage, it was always – it's more it was more of a basketball mentality of you got to keep the guy in front of you and you're looking through the receiver to the quarterback. And now uh, – and I don't think that this is bad fundamentals. It's obviously being coached uh, for a reason. Um, and I've had discussions with coaches about this over the years, and I kind of know the answer, but I think there are probably a lot of people who are wondering it too, so – uh, I'd like to ha- hear it from your words as somebody, as an expert. Um, you see so many times the, the defensive back not turning his head to look around. And it's like, even if it's 30 yards downfield and it looks like the guy's lost. And I know he's being taught to read things like the hands and the eyes, but that's a cheat that can get you into some trouble. So I guess, can you explain how that changed and why that changed to where DBs are now taught to look back late instead of earlier. Well, I'm going to tell you, bad DB coaches um, teach looking and playing through the hands because if you truly play through the play through the hands, good receiver coaches are going to teach receivers to flash your hands late. So you're not going to run with your hands straight up. You're going to run. The ball's going to come over your head, track it, catch it. Marvin so, Harrison. Right, and then you flash your hands late. If I flash my hands late, yeah, the DB does not have a chance to go through my hands. And if you go through the hands, that means your eyes aren't back looking at the ball. So what I taught my DBs were, okay, once once the route progressed 15 yards and deeper, yeah, and you're you're in phase, that means hip to hip, um, shoulder to shoulder, you can now turn into, right, with your head back, shoulder, um, into the receiver and get your eyes back to that quarterback for a quick, quick glimpse because the ball is coming at some point, right? But if you're just teaching the guy just to run and play and look off the receiver, yeah, the receiver, good receivers aren't going to give good indicators to play the ball. Randy Moss was one of the most amazing. You can talk about Randy Moss's ability to leap and his speed and all this stuff. But one of the, I, and I can't remember who did the story. I'd give credit if I could. It was a television story about how he trained him, his eyes not to get big because that was another key that you look for as a defensive back is when the receiver's eyes get big, that means the ball's on its way. And it's like a telltale thing to actually train himself to not open his eyes wider when the ball was in the air to me was just next level stuff. Oh, no doubt about it. And, you know, playing the position, I always felt when the ball was coming. Because it's like the whole world kind of it goes quiet, and it's just you, and you can feel that receiver almost running and grunting. And then, like you said, the eyes get big, and bad receivers 
give away their indicators when the ball's coming. A lot You're of guys about quiet, afraid. like the crowd. You mean, or like oh, yeah, the stadium every, and the, the whole world goes. Yeah, it's it's this is it's quiet and this is you and him, and you can feel the ball coming some way somehow. Mm-hmm. Some people have an instinctually, and you feel it. And then a lot of guys, what they do, like I said, they panic. Where you see them start grabbing and clutching and working into the receiver, and you see the the real good ones that have ball skills, Champ Bailey's, Revis. Deion Sanders, Rod Woodson, right? Uh, Amar, uh, Antonio Cromati, very good ball skills. Where those guys would relax, almost come to a phase of they're the receiver, and they're just calmly work themselves back into the receiver, elevate eyes back, and go for the ball. A name that you mentioned in a text to me early this week, maybe the greatest of all time at that, Aeneas Williams. Oh, Aeneas, just instincts out the yin-yang but ball skills, and understood that the play's not over until the whistle's blown and the ball's on the ground, right? So it, it's just really drilling that with your DBs or your cornerbacks over a period of time so where they now are comfortable with the balls in the air. When I was coaching, I never allowed a drill without throwing the football so the, the, the corners can actually catch the ball. Because you, you can do as many drills as you want to with cones and lines, and you have guys looking around, checking their feet and their hips and whatever. But at the end of the day, the ball is the issue. Who's Sorry, Matt, I'm, I'm dominating the, the uh, questions here, and I know you have some. But right on that topic, uh, Gerald, is there a guy, maybe you coached him, uh, or and you know, hopefully it's somebody in the NFL so the listeners will know uh, who we're talking about here, um, or viewers if you're watching on YouTube. Um, is there a guy who was maybe just lights out at defend at guarding, you know, at being in your hip pocket, but just had the zero had zero ball skills and Daryl Green, Daryl Green. Green. Okay. Now he was a return man though. So, I mean, but he just couldn't put it together on. If you've seen Daryl Green in warmups trying to catch a football, you would think that, wow, how is he one of the better corners of all time? It's not very good ball skills, but the ability to stay in hip pocket, reaction skills, instincts went to break when he's playing off, when he's pressing enough quickness to react and get back in phase with speed to recover Daryl Green. But ball skills, not so much. I'd have to go back and look. I just remember Daryl Green being future Hall of Famer, I mean, and the returns and all that stuff. But I'll have to go back and look at some clips. Yeah, yeah I, studied, I studied D. Green in. That wasn't his uh, his best attribute was, was catching the football. Everything else, whew, that's what you're looking for. But finishing plays, not so much. As somebody who played, test. as somebody who played the position, um, you talk about the two completely different you know types of players. Stephon Gilmore and Tre'Davious White are because they're in two different schemes. Right. Is one scheme easier to play in than the other? Um, or one style easier to play? It all depends on your mentality. Uh, most guys that are press corners have somewhat of an alpha male attitude and a disregard for combat. Because when you press, you're really in a boxing match. And you aren't afraid of the receiver in your personal space. Most guys that like to play off and stay off, they don't like – 
receivers in their personal space. They like to create space so they can react, play through the receiver, key on the quarterback with the ability to break and come downhill. So it's really, to me, it's more mentality and feel than actually um, truly skill set, if that makes any sense. Do you think the scheme that, that Sean McDermott plays – I don't know, break it down for, I guess, the, the in layman's terms of, of how they play coverage and, and then, I guess, how valuable corners are there, how interchangeable they can be, because we've seen a lot of guys come in and out here. Right. Um, the, the scheme that the Bills are using now is uh, very cornerback friendly, right, because you play a lot of quarter, quarter, half. That means if you slice the field up in quarters, right, one corner has a, one quarter of it, the other safety has the other quarter, and the corner towards the other safety has half of the field. So he's playing cover two. So cover four and cover two. Quarter, quarter, half. Some people call it cover six. Right? Um, it's, it's friendly with the ability to play through the receiver with eyes on the quarterback. And that's why I see majority of Sean's guys get a lot of interceptions. That's why there's not a lot of value on true man-to-man lockdown skills. At times, you have to play man-to-man. And he puts those guys in situations to do so. But playing in his system, you see a lot of those corners throughout the years have a lot of success because they're not truly stressed in playing and covering man-to-man. Their stress is reading routes um, and attacking the passing concept that's coming towards them with the ability to finish with interceptions, less with PBUs. So it's What's almost kind of bend but don't break defense, but he's going to give you – Sean's defense is going to give you some throws. And when you when you make that mistake, his defenders and, and his corners make you pay for it with intercepting the ball and getting the ball back to the offense, a la the year that Josh Norman had. Josh Norman, solid skills, but ball skills and instincts. And the year that he had before he hit free agency, that's what really broke him out. Let's keep this an entirely defensive back centric uh, conversation. We'll wrap it up with this. I think it's a good way because we're brings us back to Sunday's game. And obviously in my estimation, I know that there are a lot of people in Buffalo that just have a, want to be a contrarian and say, no, they'll, they'll give me Newt Rockney or something, but uh, the greatest uh, coach of all time uh, that the bills are going to be going up against on Sunday um, and his ability to dial up defenses specific for a situation. Um, what have you seen in what defenses, let's say, let's keep it in the secondary because that's what we're talking about. And I like having this very uh, thematic show. Right. Uh, what are defensive backs doing to Josh Allen and Brian Dable uh, compared to the beginning of the season? Um, how would you, how would you draw that up on a, on the chalkboard. Well, watching the first few games when Josh just had incredible success, they were facing a lot of man-to-man scheme. That means guys were running with their receivers and those throws were easier. Like Josh can see it man-to-man. You see a lot of the times that he'll move a lot of the, the, the receivers. He'll move the running back in, um, bring him out, bring him out, bring him in, bring him in, bring him out with a lot of movements from, the slot receiver to determine if it's going to be man-to-man or zone. In the first four games, um, they had a lot of man-to-man concepts uh, that they ran that was pretty good because, they're, like I said, that's what they're seeing um, defensively. 
the last um, couple of games where he saw he struggled a little bit, they were playing a lot more zone. And it's like a smoke and mirrors trick, right? So you show him something pre-snap, post-snap, you show him something totally different. So while he's getting the ball snapped to him, you'll see the two safeties shift out, the cornerback come down, the linebacker runs the middle of the field in the cover two or whatever zone coverage that you're going to run at, Josh. And they're taking away the explosive plays. Now, in my opinion, what Josh did in the second half last week against the Jets was he took what the defense was giving him. Same thing that he did a few times in a couple of drives versus Tennessee. So to make a long story short, not longer, as long as Josh and Brian stay patient and takes what the defense gives them in the zone, they'll be perfectly fine. But at times you see Josh is not patient and he'll try to go for the home run hits and he'll throw into coverage, which the offense does not dictate that throw, that play at that time. That makes any sense. Would it be pot? Why wouldn't a team just play zone all the time then? Why wouldn't, uh, do you, would you expect teams to just keep playing zone? I know not every team necessarily has the personnel, but it seems like most teams can play a little of both. Would you expect teams to kind of just keep playing zone until he proves he can beat it? Yeah, play zone and then, you know, at times mix it up with some blitzes. But if I was coaching against him, yes. I would I would let him prove to me that he could make accurate throws and force um, the Bills offense to go 10, 12 play drives to score instead of two, three explosive plays. Because truly, if you saw at the beginning of the year, it was explosive plays. I don't think a lot of teams, again, you didn't have preseason, so they took time to adjust. You know, they, they thought it was the same old Bills receivers. No, there's a bad man from Maryland named Steph Diggs that's out there that can mix up any um, defensive back in the NFL. He's an excellent route runner. And then you have Smoke, John Brown, that can blow the top off. And then you have the sneaky Sultan of the slot, um, Cole Beasley, can get open and find his way against man-to-man coverage. And he's in, he's so intelligent to find his own. So long story short, early on, defensive coordinators were thinking, hey, we can play man-to-man, smother cover man-to-man, and get these guys and force Josh to throw in the tight windows. What Josh is throwing, showing people is, yeah, you can make me throw in the, um, small windows or tight windows, but Steph Diggs is going to get open. Um, John Brown can run by your number two corner. So we'll live with these matchups and be perfectly fine. Well, Gerald, I can't thank you enough for coming back uh, once a week. Maybe maybe this will be a regular deal, man. I don't want to wear you out or uh, mm-hmm. exploit you, but uh, this has been uh, educational. This has been fun. You've made uh, you've made the show better two weeks in a row. People are just going to want to tune into the Gerald Dixon podcast. No, <laughs> man, don't give me that much credit. I'm just I'm just I'm just sitting here just talking ball to two good guys. Well, thanks for that, and uh, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back again soon if time allows for you and uh, in your schedule. But uh, you're welcome back anytime. This is a blast. Oh, man, appreciate you guys having me. Hopefully my phone don't go off again and um. My sister. <laughs> hey, that's all right. It's no frills radio. Uh, my dog can start barking at any time. It's happened. Uh, today's my daughter's birthday. She's got a friend over. I thought it might have been more than. Oh, 
there's my dog right there, right on cue. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were going to have 12 year old girls uh, yelling and screaming upstairs. So we dodged that bullet, but uh, anything can happen or a ringing phone. That means you're busy. That means people want to well, talk to you. That's a good. No, story. I got five. I got five sisters, and they and they like to talk to their young brother. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> right on, Gerald. Thanks for doing right. this. Appreciate you. And joining us now on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. On the line from Vegas, it's Joel Staniszewski from Sloan, from Buff State. Um, well, I, I guess I went out of order. I got to say St. Joe's. Um, right. What are you prouder of, your St. Joe's uh, diploma or your degree from Buff State? I think the, the being from Sloan is the, is the biggest one, right? <laughs> Yeah, good point. You're right. You're right. Being from Sloan, we're, we're, you're out in Vegas. You, yeah. uh, you stop by, you come through Sloan maybe once once or twice a year, right? When's the yeah, last time you were my, back uh, because of the pandemic? Uh, uh, just about a year ago. I was back for Halloween this past year, and I went to um, what game? Miami when uh, the right. Miami game when Jordan Poyer returned that onside kick for a touchdown. That was when I was uh, here last. Um, speaking of St. Joe's, my nephew goes to Timon. And so he's like a super sport success, super sport success alliteration. Uh, he goes to Timon. And so my, my brother and sister-in-law are always posting online, like, go Timon. They're playing against, you know, St. Francis. And all those teams. When, they, when they said they were going against St. Joe's, I, I told them I couldn't cheer for them that game. I got, I have my priorities and it's uh, SJCI reign supreme over all other high schools. What sport was this? Uh, this was soccer, but he also plays oh. um, baseball. He's a, he's a really good baseball player, like incredibly good baseball player. Okay. I was going to say, because so some of these avoid, sports. He's avoiding Joe Licata then. <laughs> Joe Licata is the athletics director, so. Yeah small world well that's what i was wondering was yeah. it football were we talking about you know rooting against former co-host joe licata although I, I don't know i don't know how hard you can cheer for time and tigers and some of those matches with st joe's in recent years there's right. a reason there's an a and a b division in that league all right speaking of a and b divisions uh before we talk about bills and patriots what do you make of this uh chiefs Jets line, which opened at 21, and a lot of people are taking uh, the points. They're taking the Jets and the points. Uh, it's down to 20, 20 19, uh, but still an obscene, uh, obscene point spread. That game is at Arrowhead Stadium, if anybody really cares. Uh, the location, I don't think, yeah. would matter too much on a fat line like that. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, three touchdowns, that's, that, that's why that number's been bet down. Three touchdowns is, is, is too much. I'm not saying they're not going to lose by more than that, but the Jets that we saw last week against the Bills played pretty well. I mean, yes, the second half they played 
horribly or our defense played awesome, depending upon how you want to look at it. But when you saw Joe Flacco under center, he, he didn't care. I mean, you could tell by watching him for the past couple of years, he's just there for a paycheck. He has just no care in the world to, to throw the ball, to get rid of it, to try to extend the plays. He's just a statue back there. So when they, when they, when with Darnold back, they're a live dog, not saying they're going to win, but 21 points is, is crazy. This goes back to the Patriots of 2007, where they were 20 plus favorites regularly and covering. Um, so yeah, the reason why that's getting bet so hard is because that's a, just a huge, huge number to lay. I mean, three touchdowns is, is astronomical to lay. You mentioned the difference with Joe Flacco and Sam Darnold, and we talked about it that we exchanged some texts during uh, the Bills game last week and how that line really was a roller coaster. I should say the spread was a, was a roller coaster. The line probably was too. Yeah. But um, it went from, what, nine? It's, it opened up at, what, 11? It went up to 13, maybe 13 and a yeah. half in some places. And then by kickoff, it was down to nine, nine and a half. And a major reason for that was once Darnold was given the go-ahead uh, that he was yeah. worth at least a, a point and a half or two in an, on, his, on his own. I'm going to be honest. The, I do a collection of numbers. I kind of put them all together and average them out to get what I think the spread should be. And then if the spread is above or below, that's how you decide whether or not you want to bet it or, or not bet it or bet the other side. And my number that I had for the bills was eight. And when we talked, I was like, I don't care, whatever, you want, whatever the number is, lay it. And again, foolishly, I, I go against my, my better judgment when I look at numbers. And um, eight, was the, eight was the number. Um, so, yeah, it, it, they, they're a decent team. Decent. I'll say they're decent. Um, whether they're the worst team in the NFL, there's still only 32 teams. So you're looking at, you know, top athletes regardless of how bad the team as a whole is. So you're still going to get games where bad teams can still perform like a really good team. Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas with us here. And uh, the pride of Sloan, period. Don't need to roll out any more uh, accreditation there. Uh, so, Joel, uh, this week's game against the Patriots, uh, is this a game – as a Bills fan, that makes it hard for you to handicap because Patriots, the colors, the logo, um, the fans, Tom Brady nightmares, Leotis the McElvin fumbling on the kickoff, um, whatever you want to put out there, uh, is it hard for you to uh, look only at the numbers when trying to figure out how to bet this one? Yeah, I mean, how do you look at – the history of the Bills and Patriots and think the Bills are a good bet. Uh, of the last 10 games, the Bills have won one. Um, I believe our the last 10 were three, six, and one against the spread. Um, average score is 25 to 15. So we've lost the average game by 10 points. Um, I mean, when you look at, when you're looking at, numbers and you're looking at history and historical data there's no reason to even think the bills would play um but we're not talking about 
Tom Brady of, you know, of, of New England. And the, the team that we're looking at now for New England is, is nowhere compared to what they were. They still have a great coach. They still have a really good defense. Um, but offensively, they, they, just, they just are nowhere near the team that uh, they were. And even if they were, you know, in weeks one and two of the season, I mean, they're not even that team anymore. Joel, as maybe not from the gambling perspective, but from your Bills fan hat, um, does it mean any less if the Bills get these wins over the Patriots this year, this win in particular, win the division, bury the Patriots, as I've seen written in some places, does that matter any less because they're not the team that they were? It's not Tom Brady. It's not slaying the dragon, if you will. I mean, sure. Uh, This win will not be as historic as when, Fitzpatrick beat him with a last second uh, field goal. But I mean, if you go back 20 years before uh, Tom Brady, did the Patriots like beating us after Jim Kelly retired? Probably. Would they have rather beat Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas and Andre Reid? Of course. Uh, I'll take a win any way I can get it. So whether we beat a crappy Jets team by eight points when we should have beat them by 30, I'll take it. If we beat New England, I'll take it. I don't care if they have backups of backups of backups in there. Yeah, you want to, to what's, what's the line? To be the best, you got to beat the best. But as a fan and as a, you know, as a betting person, a win is a win. So you take it however you get it. Joel, how, and you touched on it there with the records really being uh, moot, because uh, those are Tom Brady records when you take a look at games against the spread. Uh, and really what you're looking at there is how odds makers have gotten it right or missed it really is the trend. You're not necessarily, you're, it's, and it's a lot of that is reputation, uh, which cannot, it's hard to filter that out of, of any odds making process. Um, so when you look at this number right now, uh, minus three, the bills are favored. Uh, the game is in Orchard Park. Um, I guess the tendency because the Patriots can keep a game tight uh, because Bill Belichick is really good at coming up with a game plan for any specific opponent uh, is the temptation to uh, take the Patriots in the points here. So yeah, the line opened at three. It's been moving up to three and a half. There's even a four in town. Um, And as I'd mentioned earlier, when I, you know, take my numbers and I, figure out what I think the spread should be. Um, I think it should be a little bit higher. I'm thinking like four and a half, five. Um, so at three, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lay New England. At three and a half, I wouldn't lay New England or take New England rather. Um, I, I love the Bills this week. Uh, well, I say that every week. Uh, I like the Bills this week when I look at just the number. If you're looking at team versus team, matchup versus matchup, all things included, you have to take injuries into account. Uh, you know, no Edelman, no uh, Harry for, for New England. Cam Newton not playing like they expected him to, playing more like he did before he left Carolina. Um, I was texting earlier with a, with a director friend of mine, and he said there's no way New England wins this game. He, he gets a feeling that the effects of him having coronavirus are not completely worn off yet. He said from what he's seen him from the beginning of the season to the end till now is not the same quarterback. 
Um, he says all the bets that he's taking, a lot of the bets he's taking is, is Buffalo minus the points, which is why you're seeing that move. You're not going to see a tremendous move because, again, you're still looking at New England versus Buffalo. And all the historical data tells you that New England's going to win this game. But this is not the Bills team that, we're, that we've seen lose to the Patriots 20 times. And this isn't the Patriots team that has beat us 20 times. So it's a whole new ball game. And uh, it's, a, it's a both whole new teams. The coaching staffs are the same, you know, in New England since forever. But um, teaching and scheme does, does a lot, you know. But if you don't have the players to execute that scheme, then you still you can't beat anybody. I, uh, I, I also uh, I have a tendency to agree with you, Joel, about the COVID angle. I don't think it's being mentioned enough as a possibility. Uh, what if Jarrett Stidham starts? What if we learn uh, maybe we don't find out until an hour and a half before the game? Uh, but let's say Bill Belichick decides to start Jarrett Stidham. Uh, what, uh, what would that do? I would expect the line to go up a little bit for, in Buffalo's favor, not a ton, half a point, point at the most. Um, and it's just because you don't know what Stidham can do. I mean, we've seen him come in and throw picks and not be that great, but we haven't seen him in a full game. And until they signed Cam Newton, the Patriots were saying that was their starter. That's who they're going with. And they made no indication that they were unsure of him until they signed uh, Cam Newton. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't, I don't think the ch a change of quarterback really changes the number that drastically. Um, what I think has affected the, the total is the, the, the line moving in the total is the crazy part. It's come down five points, opened at 46 and is now down to 41. And that has a lot to do with the weather report, which is supposedly going to be crazy windy and, and rainy. Um, and that's where we'll see who, who can scheme up a better game plan here. We know that Josh Allen can throw the ball all over the field, and we assume he can do it in the rain or the wind. Uh, he had trouble against well. Kansas City in the rain. Right. But he, he still, yeah, but we're also talking about Kansas City. We're talking about two different teams here. So I, I, I would definitely take Josh Allen in a throwing contest in the rain versus either Patriots quarterback. Uh, the Patriots are a much better running team. Uh, that's because they have to focus on the run and not the pass because they don't have much of a passing offense. So if Buffalo can, can you know, carry over some of that excitement and that gut check fortitude that they had in the second half of last week to this week, then, you know, th there's, there's no way the Bills lose this game. All right. Stone Cold Lock. No way the Bills lose outright. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet a finger on it, but uh, I definitely like it. Um, yeah, it's definitely probably the second best bet on the board if I'm looking at the lines. The, first, the best bet being Denver Broncos. Plus three. Plus so three and a half saying, now. Oh, you're giving us bonus picks now? Your bonus you got, pick, you take Denver back, Broncos plus three and a half. Back to back one in one weeks. So maybe yeah. uh, maybe this shakes shakes things up a little bit. So you say Bills minus three. You say Broncos plus three. And do you want to give a half a, now? Huh? You can get three, three and, and a half? half now. Okay. You can get three and a half. Hook. And then uh, Bills. Um, what about the total? 
You've been That's, going the under anyways, and now with this weather report, I'm assuming you're going to like yeah. the under? That's a big move, though. 41. You know, 41. 41 is not a lot of That's points. A, uh, no, I'm going, I'm going to take – I'm betting I'm taking over 41. Over 41. Okay. Is the Bills, the red zone issues last week, getting a lot of field goals and no touchdowns, is that a trend that a better might look at, or is that something that you don't want to overreact too much? The Patriots yeah, aren't scoring touchdowns either. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a huge thing. I mean, you look at the Bills team that didn't, couldn't score touchdowns, a New England team that couldn't score touchdowns. Uh, and then you factor in the weather, that definitely takes into account why that line, that number dropped so much on the total. Um, I just think it's too low. I mean, we're in a weather, weather regardless and team regardless. This season, there's been, I don't know the number, but I guarantee you that there's been considerably more overs than unders across the league this year. All right. Joel Staniszewski, Las Vegas handicapper, odds maker, and industry analyst for a long time out there in. I was I stopped myself from saying Sin City. I mean, that's such a what's what's another? I mean, I should know this. Sloan I mean, City. Does I guess. Vegas have another nickname? Uh, Not that I know of. I mean, the Meadows. If I want to get all you know Spanish uh, translation on you, but. On the way from driving from Las Vegas to California, not that I've done that recently, but there's a exit for Sloan, right when you're getting towards uh, California. Is that anywhere near physics? It is near very, very close to Zizix Road. Yes, very the all-time great signs. It's got about 12 Zs in it. That could be uh, your life story from Sloan City to Sin City. And you make it big. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Right. Joel Staniszewski, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. All right, now uh, back with the full crew here. Uh, Jonah Bronstein uh, still with us. Matthew Fairburn is back. And uh, as we wrap up the show here, some great thoughts from uh, Gerald Dixon earlier. And, of course, uh, we just heard from Joel Staniszewski with his breakdown on uh, Patriots at Bills. Uh, college football doings. Um, UB was selected by the media that covers the Mid-American Conference to win the uh, division and also uh, to win the entire thing. So, Jonah, um, as somebody who follows the team as closely as you do, any surprise on that? Uh, and uh, I guess just uh, where you think uh, UB's headed this year. Well, the media poll came out today and put Buffalo as the favorite for the, both the East Division and the overall Mid-American Conference title. There was a coaches poll yesterday that had UB second in the East and not the favorite to win the overall MAC championship. So there's a little bit of split there among who participates in these polls. I've seen magazines, Athlon, Phil Steele putting Buffalo as the favorite. They're at least one of the teams that are favored to win this MAC season where there's no non-conference games. It's just six MAC games going into the MAC championship game in Detroit in December. And Buffalo is at least one of the favorites to contend to be playing in that game. But if things go well for them, they really could be the best team in the MAC, and this could be one of the best seasons that the team could ever have. 
Jonah, what have you heard from players and coaches just about the excitement level to be playing? I mean, when I hear you say that this could be the best UB team ever, um, for a minute it looked like the Mac wasn't going to play football and this team would never see the light of day. I know it's only a six-game schedule, but how are they – how are they feeling about the fact that they even get to play based on how things were just a couple of months ago? Well, that's really been the theme that we've heard from, especially the players that we've been able to talk to on these Zoom calls, but even Coach Lance Lightfoot, that they're just happy to be playing, whether it's six games, which is that's the season they're playing, but if it was six games, eight games, ten games, if there's canceled games and they don't even get to six, they're just happy to be back out there, even if there's no fans, even if the potential to go to the bowl game isn't the same experience that they've had before. They're not going to be able to play in a big stadium like at Penn State as they have in years past. But just being able to play football, to practice, to prepare for games, to be part of one of these FBS leagues or one of these FBS teams that's playing college football in the fall this year, they're very happy to be on that ship and that they didn't have what, as I mentioned, maybe one of their best teams in school history and that that season didn't evaporate because the Mac wasn't able to play while other leagues were playing. Jonah, you tweeted uh, this week uh, your thoughts on the quarterback situation. Uh, Can you recap it for us here? Well, it's been a quarterback competition throughout the offseason, even though Kyle Van Treese, I think, is one of the reasons that there's there's such high expectations for this team is the way they finished last year. Six and two in their final eight games, and there were a couple special teams mistakes, missed kicks away from – winning all eight of those games. And all eight of those games at the end were with Kyle Van Treese starting a quarterback after Matt Myers got injured. Now, Kyle Van Treese had a foot injury, had surgery, and wasn't able to practice in the spring when Matt Myers came back from his surgery and his injury. And so throughout the offseason, well, until now, Lance Leipold this morning said they're still having a quarterback competition. However, I've heard in the people that I talk to and really just watching this team and knowing that they've decided to go with Kyle Van Treese as the starting quarterback at, at least a week ago and that it's not a competition, but going into that first game, they don't necessarily want to tip their hand in Northern Illinois. Kyle Van Treese and Matt Myers are two different quarterbacks stylistically. They want Northern Illinois to have to prepare for both of them. So even though I can say, as the election pollsters say, with a high degree of confidence, I will predict that Kyle Van Treese started starts the UB opener they won't announce that, I believe, until the day of the game. But Kyle Van Treese, move. He, he's not the most talented quarterback that UB's had, or, or he's not one of these stars of the Mac that's going to go on to play in the NFL. But he's a very smart, efficient quarterback that only turned the ball over three times in those eight games. And with Kyle Van Treese playing quarterback, leaning on one of the best running attacks in all of football, Jared Patterson's an All-America candidate at running back, and they have another running back, Kevin Marks, that rushed for 1,000 yards last year, one of the best defenses the program's ever had. His quarterbacking style fits much better with this team to go on a similar run this season as they finished with him under center last season. All right. That's a pretty well-rounded Tim Graham and friends. It's like the old radio show when we – Yeah. We talked about back and Raptors and, and Buffalo. We talked some World Series. All we need is Bobby to tell us about the vaping flavors, and it's that's all. We should get Bobby on the show. We should see if he's uh, if he's allowed to come on the show and uh, tell us about what he's mixing prickly berry with. We should get him on for some election talk. There's that too. Uh, We here's the thing: the 
the Tim Graham show, or I should say Tim Graham and friends has some really cool friends that are plugged into the election and I can't have them on because they're so busy. I can have them on at any time. But anybody, well, after the election, they might not be busy at all. Ryan Nobles to Susan Milligan to Andrew Yang's campaign uh, advisor, who's from here. Um, it's uh, there's so many political. The um, he would be essentially uh, CNN's Adam. Um, oh, Harry Etten. Oh, huh? Are you talking about Harry Etten, the CNN? Yeah, Harry Etten. Oh, so I was going to say yep. Adam Silver. I, I'm wrong. Silver. Nate Silver. Nate Silver. Right, he used to work at 538 with Nate Silver. Yeah, right. all these guys are the same. They all read the same polls and come up with the same algorithm. I'm sure they have. I'm sure he has thoughts on Blake Snell, too. They're, yeah, they're like Tampa Bay Rays relievers. <laughs> all right, we've been on this uh, podcast too long. Um, my thanks to Matthew Fairburn and to Jonah Bronstein uh, and to CTBK. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on acquisitions and mergers, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. Shampo Travis Bison Kirshner, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Uh, my thanks, of course, to CTBK for making the jump uh, from terrestrial radio to TGAF podcast and uh, remaining our sponsor. Uh, so next time uh, we're all together, we'll probably be talking about the bills in the driver's seat in the AFC East. Um, and uh, as Joel Staniszewski said, uh, I don't think that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick were too busted up that they have their reign of dominance long after Jim Kelly and Dan Marino were out of the division. So I don't think the bills should feel guilty if they stomp on the Patriots and, and win a division this year. Um, he also said Stone Cold Lock, best bet. Guaranteed okay. Bill's victory. On the money line, though, right? Right, right, yeah. That was on the money line. Uh, but then, uh, so you know what? I should add that to the wager. I should say Bill's on money line as I keep track of uh, Joel's, uh, Joel's bets on the year. He's still up. He's been spinning his wheels two weeks in a row, but still has made you money this year if you've been listening to him. Uh, okay, guys, thanks.